Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. The Action Research Network of the Americas is pleased to sponsor this podcast and invites you to be part of their seventh annual conference, Co-Creating Knowledge, Empowering Communities, virtually this year with sessions throughout the month of June. Information about the conference can be found at arnawebsite.org conferences. Now back to your hosts. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. We have a treat for you all today, and I personally could not be more excited about the recording of this podcast. Today, we have as our guest, Dr. Mary Bryden Miller. So a couple formalities. First, Dr. Mary Bryden Miller, Mary, is a full professor at the University of Louisville College of Education and Human Development in the Educational Leadership, Evaluation, and Organization Development Program. Her current research focuses on research ethics in educational and community settings, and on the transformation of institutions of higher education through action research. Her research areas include climate change education, research ethics, and action research. And as a little side note, she has hiked the entire South Downs Way, a hundred mile hike in Southern England. That is a pretty impressive feat. Dr. Mary Bryden Miller, thank you for coming on to our podcast. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Joe. Before we kind of get into it, there's a few things that I personally feel the need to talk about. First of all, to be fully transparent, Mary is the chair of my dissertation committee. Now, that is not to say that as above us also being friends and colleagues, we've shared plenty of good times together while I was in Louisville and truly a mentor of mine. And I've just learned so much from you, not just academically and professionally, but personally as well. I also feel the need to make a public apology. So I'm not sure if you remember this, Mary, but nearly a year ago at this point, you and I were were talking right when I was supposed to be starting to collect my uh, data for my dissertation here in Peru. And right around the time that COVID was sadly starting to pick up steam. And we, we were having one of our normal meetings And I kind of threw in there that I met this guy, Joe, and really good guys. We have a lot in common, action researcher, et cetera. And we talked about this idea of starting an action research podcast. You know, I kind of made the case for why I thought that was a good idea and cool. And I could see you nodding and agreeing and all the things. And and, and your response was somewhat along the lines of, yeah, that sounds great. Just finish your dissertation first. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a fair point. But that response resonated with me. So I continued to move on with this podcast and I didn't even tell you about it. And I kind of felt guilty every time 
that I invited somebody else on. <laughs> and then I know eventually Alfredo came on, who's a mutual, close mutual friend of ours. I know he circled back to you. And it just got to the point where I couldn't resist any longer. So I'm sorry <laughs> for, for not bringing you in on this, but as we begin to wrap up season one, I, I, I don't think uh, there could be a more appropriate time or guest to have you on. So thank you. And I'm sorry. Apology accepted. You've passed your proposal phase. You're collecting data. I'll forgive you. Appreciate that. I'll make it up to you sometime. How about by finishing my dissertation? Yeah, yeah that would be a good, good start. <laughs> Mary, how long have you been in this field of action research? You know, when I think about it, it really goes back as far as my undergraduate days at the University of California at Santa Cruz. I was a undergraduate there in the 70s, and I wasn't calling it action research. I didn't know that's what I was doing. But for my senior project, I did a study of transportation needs of older citizens of the town of Santa Cruz mostly because I was tired of hanging out with undergraduates. In Santa Cruz at the time, there were two populations, sort of older retired people and college students. I was interested in actually doing something that would be of practical use to people. And so I started volunteering with this transportation group and went out and interviewed older people in Santa Cruz and tracked what kind of trips they were taking and what kind of transportation needs they had and advocated for change. So I was doing action research without even knowing that that's what it was called. I think because it just felt to me like the right way to work, which is what I hear from a lot of people when they finally learn about action research. They say, I've been doing it all along and I just didn't know that's what it was called. And I realized after some time that I was in exactly the same boat. That's how it started. Okay, yeah, funny enough, I think Joe and I can both relate to that. We've both spoken about that um, explicitly on the pod. And the reason why I ask how long you've been in this field is because we have to introduce you, right, to our audience who doesn't know who you are, but I feel like that's also opening, that, that could very well open the floodgates for just an entire episode of all the things that you are and represent and have stood for in action research. So I hope it's not too difficult of a question, but is there a way that you can sort of give, you know, a cliff notes version of who is Mary Bryan Miller as an action researcher? I think the first thing I do is point to my most important mentors because they are ever present with me and I think have really shaped who I am as an action researcher. When I was in graduate school at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in environmental psychology, and it was an interdisciplinary program, so I sort of was a bit of an orphan within the department. But at one point, I got really disenchanted with the field of psychology. And I can tell you sort of the moment when it's happened, it happened when I was in a, a class about research methods and they were talking about how we should use deception. And I remember saying, it's just not okay to lie to people. And they tried to justify it. And I said, I'm sorry, but that's just, you know, I guess I was even thinking about ethics even then, right? It's just, that's not acceptable. I said, you know, if the questions matter to people, they'll answer them. And that just set me on sort of a mission to find some other way of working. I was also told you can't mix your politics and your psychology, meaning I was doing all this community organizing at night. I was actually the youngest convener of the Gray Panthers at one point in the country elder advocacy organization. And I was trying to find a way of bringing together sort of my scholarly interests and my activist self and being told they were incommensurate with each other and that was not acceptable. So I went looking for some way, because uh, I figured if I have to give up one or the other, I'll give up the scholarship, but I don't want to be forced to do that. And they sent me off to talk to this guy in sociology, a guy named Peter Park, who was doing action research and writing about action research. 
And he, together with people for the Center for International Education, brought Paulo Freire to campus. Over a couple of years, he was there as a visiting professor for like a month or so at a time. And I got put in charge of him. It's kind of his dog's body. So, you know, I went to the airport to pick him up. I found him an apartment. I went grocery shopping with him. I met his wife, Elsa, and took her grocery shopping. We spent a lot of time together. And I got to know him, not just as a scholar and, you know, an intellectual influence, but as somebody who really deeply affected just how I see the world. And, you know, Adam, when you talk about my impact on you as a mentor personally, that really touches me because that's the kind of impact I want to have on students because it's a kind of impact that Paulo Freire had on me. So if I'm able to in any way reflect that way of supporting students on all levels, I, I just really appreciate that. And one of the things that he really taught me was just his respect for people. Because I got to do all these things with him, just hang out, you know, take him to the store. And every person I ever saw him interact with, he was just genuinely curious about them and their lives and what they knew and what they thought. But, you know, the man read in multiple languages. He was a genius. But he had such humility in the way he approached that genius and the way he used that. It was just, he was a remarkable person. And, you know, sometimes you meet somebody who impresses you in a scholarly way, and then you meet them and they're like, you know, really dismissive of students or they're really arrogant. And you think, oh, I'm so disappointed in this person because they write all these beautiful things and then they're really sort of jerks. And he was just the opposite. He was absolutely, you know, if you read his work and it's warmth and it's humor and he talks about love and he absolutely lived the philosophy that he writes. So more than anyone, he just had an extraordinary impact on me. And the other person was Miles Horton, who was one of the founders of what's now the Highlander Research and Education Center here in, in Tennessee, who was just an incredibly courageous, funny, committed person that, you know, then gave me a tie like one generation back intellectually to somebody like Jane Addams. And how cool is that? So I, I'd say that those two people were the most, had the most profound impact on how I'd like to see myself as an action researcher, what I aspire to even now. Wow. That's really the only response that I have to that. For those of you who have read Freire and Horton and, and know how influential they are in the field of action research, I mean, here's Mary talking about her personal relationship with them. And I think that says a lot um, about who you are in action research. And for those of you who are listening that haven't read or are familiar with those folks, highly recommend that you go out and, and check it out. It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions for our guest. The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. I feel Here's like I should a... have a buzzer that I can hit. Yeah. <laughs> Question one, what is action research? Action research is a form of knowledge generation that is founded in the belief that people in communities, people in organizations, students in schools know their own experience better than we can and that in order to generate knowledge that's going to be useful in creating change and promoting social justice, we need to be in collaboration with people in ways that really honor their knowledge and expertise. Question two, what is essential to a good action research project? Relationships, time, humility, humor, respect, flexibility, and focus. Question three, 
What is reflexivity in action research? I think my friend David Coughlin captures it better than most people when he talks about sort of being in the project, but then being able to stand back from the project to sort of look at and think about what's going on. Because it's so easy to get caught up what you're doing that you don't take time to think about what role you have in the process to really do that process of considering what options there are. So I think particularly for people doing dissertations, that's important to be able to work at those two levels at the same time, being fully engaged, but also being able to step back and reflect on what's going on within the process. Question four. What is collaboration in action research? It's easier to tell you what collaboration isn't. And here I would refer back to the work of Sherry Arnstein and her ladder of citizen participation, because I think oftentimes collaboration, people think that collaboration starts much further into the process than it does. Like I have this idea for research, I'm going to go out and get funding, I'm going to get IRB approval, and now we're going to start to collaborate. That's not what collaboration is. Collaboration is establishing a relationship, finding out what other people need, and building a project around their interests and their concerns, and seeing it through from beginning to end to after in relationship with others. Question five, what is participation in action research? There is an ideal and a real in terms of participation. And one thing I worry about is that people sometimes talk about my action research is purer than your action research because I have more participation. And it has to be driven by reality in terms of what kind of time um, people have and what kind of investment different people will have in the project. Participation is doing the best you can under the circumstances that you find yourself in to engage people as fully as possible. Question six, what is data collection in action research? Data collection in action research can be very traditional. We're perfectly happy with quantitative research. We're happy with qualitative research, but I would encourage anyone who's considering doing this to really seek out some of the more creative, more arts-based, more collaborative, participatory methods that have been designed that sort of go beyond more traditional ways of generating data to really engage people in knowledge generation processes. I tell everyone has the ability, everyone has the right to contribute to knowledge generation processes, and it's your job as an action researcher to figure out how to help them to do that. Question seven, what is the most common mistake you see with budding action research scholars or practitioners? Thinking you have to know the answer and thinking that you have to know what you're doing from the beginning and not being too fearful of stepping off the cliff. Sometimes use the analogy of the, there's a scene in an Indiana Jones movie where he has to step off the cliff to save his father's life, but a bridge emerges. And that's what happens, but people don't believe that it's going to happen. They don't trust the process. Question eight, what is the most common mistake you see with seasoned action researchers? Getting full of themselves. Full stop. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, that is it for the lightning round. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about like the current state of action research. One of, one of the articles that I decided to share with our team was one of the earlier ones that you published in 2003, Why Action Research, with David Greenwood and Patricia McGuire in action research. 
And Joe pulled out a quote that I thought was interesting, right? And it's pretty straightforward. How you mentioned that action research is a work in progress. So we kind of wanted to talk to you about that, right? What would you say are some of the key areas that are still in debate in the realm of action research that still haven't been addressed that needs some attention? Well, I think one of the real challenges we face right now is, and I've been telling people this for years, to be honest, that I feel likely to be done in by our friends and by our enemies. You know, for a long time, we fought against more traditional, quantitative, positivist informed research, and we're trying to justify ourselves. And even after qualitative research began to be more accepted, still nobody knew what action research was. And now it seems like everybody and their dog thinks that they're doing action research. And it's often a very poor quality. It's often not really participatory. It's not really based in relationship. It's mandated. People from on top say, we're going to do action research and fix this organization, which just goes against every basic principle of action research. So one of the things I think we really need to work on is without trying to establish rules, which would kind of miss the point of action research, to be honest, to continue to talk about quality criteria in action research. It's one of the things that Randy Stoker and I wrote about uh, not too long ago. I know the Action Research Journal has some clear sort of guidelines for what constitutes high quality action research, but continuing to have that conversation about what does good action research look like is I think really important going forward. And the other thing I'd say is Danny Burns, uh, who's a friend of mine who's at the Institute for Development Studies in Brighton, has written a book about what he calls systemic action research that's about trying to really have a, a large impact. And the way you do that is not by single projects, but by having multiple projects focused on the same problem that come together to have a, an increased impact in terms of change. So I'd say that's another thing. And the third thing I'd say is we have to be a lot more engaged in policy. We have to think about how the research that we're doing, if we're going to affect change, we have to be at the table in terms of policy discussions, and we haven't been sufficiently. So I think we really need to get our act together in that regard. So just to take it one step further, one of the things I try and do is pull out the sort of practical lens, right, and consideration of our audience. And I think those are such powerful points. If it was easy to do, it would have been done. I think, suffice to say, and some of the things that you're suggesting. But for those, as action research, you know, it seems like it's beginning to gain more traction and get more attention and people are starting kind of to learn about what it's all about from the, the floor level. Given what you were just saying, what are some of like the core fundamental concepts that you would share with our audience in getting the ball rolling? What are like those core fundamental concepts that people should be keeping in mind who are entering this world of action research for social change? It's the social change part, I think, Adam. Okay. Because I think oftentimes that gets sort of left off at the end and we just talk about action research. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's like a spectrum from technical to emancipatory in action research. And you know, technical action research is sort of like about identifying a fairly narrow, well-defined problem of practice and trying to address it. And at least in education, I think a lot of action research is focused on that kind of technical action research. And I think everybody has to come in somewhere. But I think even people who come in doing technical action research, sort of at that end of the spectrum, oftentimes find that maybe the fixes that they're coming up with aren't really working because they're not dealing with deeper systems of inequality, for example. And they kind of get pushed to a more and more emancipatory stance 
as they engage in the practice. So I would never sort of try to tell somebody they're doing it wrong. This is where reflective sort of practice comes in again, Joe. I would encourage them to try to move toward a more emancipatory that really brings that social justice focus back in to our discussions and our practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that really drew me to action research was this social justice orientation that's kind of inherent in the method and the methodology and the paradigm more importantly. And as someone who's been working with kind of small organizations that are community-based and community-run for 10 years and thinking through some of these tricky questions about what is social justice and, and what is our responsibility? So one of the things that I think action research does really well is it provides new avenues for responsibility because it changes the power dynamics of how people engage in organizational decision-making and in creation of organizations and how organizations are run. But I also find that that then leads to trickier and more difficult questions when we start to think about, okay, so what is social justice? We've changed the power dynamics. You know, there's a community uh, collaborative that's making decisions about curriculum, for example, in, in the case of, of the work that I do. And then what happens with the responsibility as these things start to develop and they start to get power, then all of a sudden the emancipation might have been there, at least in this little teeny pocket, you know, this one little teeny space, but then we have to shift to becoming responsible for others as well. And so then the emancipation, is the emancipation like an endpoint or is it a constant, like in action research, this iterative process that's happening? And, and these are tricky questions that I've been thinking about in action research. And all that to be said is my question to you is, you've been around action research for you know a long time. You're kind of a seminal figure in the field. How have you seen action research shift over the years in terms of what they're talking about and what the issues are? Oh, that's a good question. How have I seen it shift? I mean, you talk about sort of my longevity in doing this, Joe, and I, I, I am kind of at what I would consider the younger end of the older generation of action researchers. I know you talked to my friend, Lonnie Rao. Lonnie, Lonnie's even older than me. <laughs> People, you know, like my friend, David Coglet or David Greenwood or Victor Friedman or Bud Hall are all people who are just a bit older than I am. And what I see happening is, and what I'm really grateful for, is a new generation of people who are doing action research, like you and Adam and Vanessa and Shika. And I think our ways of understanding and doing this, I really like teaching action research, but I'm excited to see where other people take this forward. I sort of feel like, I remember telling my friend Sue Nofke, who was an educational action researcher once that I thought we all had to get off the stage to like make space for somebody else. And Sue's answer was kind of, well, isn't there room on the stage for all of us? And I think there is, but I do think that we need to consciously open up room for not just other people doing action research, but leadership in action research, which is why I invited my friend Dusty Embury to be part of the Action Research Journal Board. You know, I think that the more opportunities we can make for new leadership is really important because I think that that will sort of open up new questions. I do think that there's been a, a more nuanced engagement with politics recently. You know, I think our conversations now about things like neoliberalism are more sophisticated than the way we were dealing with politics. Obviously, issues of racial justice have come more to the fore, but we still need a lot more people of color who are involved in doing action research. And that hasn't happened to the extent that I think it needs to. We need to be able to build bridges between theoretical frameworks like critical race theory 
and action research, which I know my friends at the Center for Race, Gender, and Social Justice at the University of Cincinnati have really been at the forefront of trying to do that. But I think those kind of new engagements with theory and politics are sort of the cutting edge that we need to be, that's where we need to be pushing. That resonates with me too. And that's kind of where I see some of the stuff that I'm confronting, at least theoretically, you know, from my positionality as a tenure track faculty member, but also as a practitioner, how are we making that systemic change and how is that shift going to happen? I think that how question has become really important because it also requires kind of a question about the, what are we aiming to do? And that's a question that is critical right now in terms of social justice. I think that there are a lot of things that in the realm of social justice, like you spoke of, working with you know First Nations, Indigenous communities, thinking through multiple ways of being and living and how do we live in a true democracy and a truly diverse society that honors everybody. You know, those are deep, deep questions that I think are being asked in new ways now. And I think action research has a way to contribute to that. And I think that's, to me, that's what you were saying. Um, about engaging with politics and engaging with systemic change and more sustainable action research. I really agree with Joe. I think it's really rich and important. One of the comments that you said that jumped out to me is this idea of leadership. It's also kind of tricky, right? Because in action research, one of the kind of running dialogues that we have on this podcast is who is action research? And the reason that's tricky is because it's a pretty wide spectrum, right? It's a lot of people, whether from the community or within higher education or practitioners or community members or leaders themselves or whatever it might be. And it raises this issue of power and privilege, right? Which also is something that I think we constantly kind of circle back somewhat explicitly, somewhat tacitly in our dialogue about action research. One of the challenges for us as hosts of the podcast is taking these sort of lofty terms or what's jargony or these theoretical ideas and trying to paint a picture for what it actually looks like, right, in the field, in practice, right? Because we can talk about power and privilege and leadership and politics all day long, but for someone that's not engaging in, the, in practices related to that, what, what sort of image or picture is that painting for them in their mind? So I have a question for you. With respect to power and privilege. And in one of your articles, uh, you referenced that you focus on the importance of including critical analysis of power and privilege within any discussion of research ethics. And we're starting to shift into the realm of ethics. I was wondering if you could offer an example of a time where you've done that, where you've literally had to navigate power differentials as an action researcher in the field. I'm not sure that this is going to exactly address your question, but this is what comes to mind for me. And that's a project that I'm currently working on in Southwest England in Gloucestershire. It's going to sound odd. It's built around a gas station, the Gloucester Motorway Services, which are on the M5. But it's a social enterprise model where the services are co-owned by a corporation and by a nonprofit trust, the Gloucestershire Gateway Trust. And the Gloucestershire Gateway Trust gets profits from the motorway services that then get invested into communities in South Gloucestershire that are some of the most economically deprived communities in the country using an asset-based community development model, which we've had sort of since the beginning. And I've been working with them for about the past five years now to do a, a yearly evaluation. But there's a real power dynamic between the corporation that owns the motorway services together with the trust, the people who are the trustees, 
who are mixed. I mean, you know, one of them is the Bishop of Tewkesbury, who is a lovely guy and, you know, a very prominent attorney in Cheltenham, which is a very wealthy community just north of where we're working. And then at the same time, I'm working at the community level with people in the nonprofit organization, community partners, like all pulling together. And my friend Jackie, who works there and is just wonderful. One of the things that we really try to do is to work at the community level, honor people in the community who are building relationships, who are coming up with the ideas. And part of what our action research projects do is take us into community fund days to talk to people in those towns about what they need to see happen. And what's really impressive is that the trustees of this nonprofit are guided by the input that we get from people in the community each year. So we go in and we talk to people in the communities at these community fund days. We go on bus rides with elders in the community. We do future creative workshops with people group level assessments, different kind of action research processes. But the results of that then go to the board of trustees and the board of trustees decisions about what gets funded in terms of community development are actually driven by people at the community level. So I think in terms of ways of really challenging established systems of power, they've built that into how they operate, which is one of the things I really respect about that project. And one of the reasons I've continued to sort of be involved is that I just I believe really deeply in their commitment to listening to communities and to working at that kind of community level. And just a shout out to my friend, Mark Gale, who is sort of the main genius behind it. It's really down to Mark Gale that that all happens. I'm doing a talk at, at the International Congress of Qualitative Inquiry in a few weeks, and I'm calling it a heartwarming work of staggering genius based on Dave Eggers' book. But the title is like, it's about Mark Gale. He's a staggering genius in, in all of this. Tell us a little bit more about Mark Gale and what it is that, that makes him such a transformative figure in this process, right? But presumably the way that you speak about him, he's sort of at the core of what's created this system, right? Of power sharing and leadership to actually achieve some degree of, of change. Can you tell us about any anything that he's actually done or how he was able to sort of make that work sounds challenging to me right and this is what we're trying to get to the bottom of this podcast is how other people might be able to hear oh x y you know mark did this much of that i could see how that fits into what i'm doing yeah it does fit into what you're doing actually i think adam you know given sort of the different communities that you're working with you're working with people there in your community in Saclio, you know at a very grounded level with folks in the those neighborhoods and at the same time, you're trying to negotiate with university administrators about bringing student groups in for student learning. So you're working at sort of multiple levels in much the same way. The best thing I can tell you about Mark is sort of you walk into this community coffee shop in Madsen with Mark Gale. And every person who walks into that space knows him, relies on him for something, contributes something because he's asked them to contribute something. And yet... You just sit down and have a cup of tea with the guy. It's not like he's the godfather or something, you know, which is sort of how it sounds. But he is one of the best networkers and just relationship builders I've ever seen in my life. I just love walking in his way into any community space and seeing what happens. And it, it gets back to that issue of humility that I mentioned earlier about Paulo Freire. He is extraordinarily smart and really thoughtful about how systems work. He really gets it. But in his interactions with anybody, he always is wanting to learn from people and interested in people and very humble about himself and self-deprecating. So 
Yeah, I think we could all take a lesson from my friend Mark, particularly those of us in the academy who, you know, let's face it, the academy trains us out of any sense of humility that we ever had. I mean, that's not the coin of the realm in the academy. The coin of the realm in the academy is one-upsmanship. And I had a conversation with one of my colleagues not too long ago, and we were talking about what I had done. And I said, my entire academic career is built on relationships. And my husband teases me because I always talk about my friends, but they are, I mean, all these people are my friends and I value their friendship, you know? So when I talk about them, I talk about them as my friends and he gives me a bad time about it. I've been successful, I think, largely because I think I'm good at building relationships and caring relationships, loving relationships. I told this to a colleague of mine and she was sort of really stunned that that was an alternative model for how to be successful in the academy, that you could do it not by trying to undermine or one-up somebody else, but by supporting and caring about somebody else. You know, my Victor Friedman's work, Victor talks about this idea of enclaves, sort of spaces within a larger organization where you can do business differently. And I think about spaces like the Action Research Center at the University of Cincinnati that I founded with my friends Miriam and Lisa as an enclave, trying to consciously create alternative spaces within the academy where we live by different rules, where instead of a dissertation defense, we have a dissertation celebration. The whole idea of a defense just seems pugilistic to me. Why do we use that kind of terminology? But that's just sort of a piece of trying to think about what would learning look like if learning were really about caring about other people and being in relationship with other people. What I heard, and it couldn't be a better answer, it's relationships, right? I mean, really, really at the core of action research and even from a practical lens, you know, how one might go about getting involved with, right? that was the question, right? How, what could we be doing? That's mm -hmm. really what I would say is kind of front and centers. It starts with relationships. Right. So. If you've ever seen like Barbara Israel has this kind of model of action research and at the center is relationships and everything kind of works around that. And then she comes to the end and it's like relationships come back. Everything revolves around building strong relationships. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's one of the things I really value about this project I work on in Gloucestershire. You know, apart from this summer, I've been able to go back every summer for like the past five years and hang out at community events. I feel like I know the people in these communities. You know, I know all of the people in the nonprofit organization partners that we work with. I know my team members. We, Every summer we hire a community resident research team of young people who are trained to do research. And I feel like I just have such, such deep relationships with these people. I'm so grateful. You know, and again, you know, that's largely due to Mark and Martin making that possible for me. That, yeah, that's great. That really resonates with me. There's the, the focus on relationships and just the focus on like you're working with people who are your friends and, and you have these, you know, caring, respectful, uh, reciprocal relationships that mm -hmm. are just part of your kind of your big family, your human family of friends and, and people who are looking out for you and you're looking out for them. It would be really awesome to have a class on like research methods 101 relationships mm -hmm. and like the implicit way of learning through having people who care about you, kind of no strings attached, just being in a society that values you as a human being and honors you. But unfortunately, we don't live in a society right. that does that all the time. And so we have to relearn it, it seems like sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it would be really great to have a class that's like all of those things that are essential for doing good work well, building relationships, being caring, all those like human mm -hmm. things. But you know, getting um, back to that why action research article, mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about is that we like each other overall. People who do action research, I found are, you don't come to this for glory. You certainly don't come to it for the money. Um, so there must be something in it. And I think it's those relationships. 
But, you know, one of the other things that Alfredo and I've talked a lot about in the work we've done together is about the, we wrote this article about like the roles and realms of action research. I think he probably talked about that with you all. And the idea that the kinds of both, this gets back to the ethics, the ethical principles and the skills required to do many of the things we're called upon to do as action researchers are not things that are taught in a research methods course. You know, in response to your sort of wish for this new course, we don't learn facilitation, which is a basic element of anything we do, right? We don't learn group facilitation skills. But more than that, we don't learn how to enter communities, build relationships, be flexible methodologically, you know, There are just all kinds of things that are core to action research practice that you sort of have to pick up along the way or maybe come in with and then refine or observe and try to emulate. But maybe that's another direction that we need to go in the future is thinking more explicitly about how do we train action researchers in the kinds of skills that they're going to need to do this work successfully. Policy engagement, you know, we certainly don't teach that, so... a second section of this podcast that we really wanted to talk about with you about ethics, because I think that's really important pedagogy. And we are kind of naturally moving into this conversation about learning and what does it mean to learn to do action research, building relationships, learning how to facilitate, learning how to engage with a community. And like you said, something that I just wanted to riff off of for a second was Thinking about paradigms and models of learning, all of us are in educational departments and learning is a key facet. And one of the things that interests me the most is this process of learning, individual as well as group and the transformational possibilities of learning as a group, is learning as a society. And some of the things that we forget about learning is that most of our learning happens through just natural observations and mirroring and modeling. And I think something like learning how to build caring relationships is really like you have to see it to learn it uh, and you have to experience it to learn it. And and I think that there is something um, maybe perhaps a little bit more profound about that kind of learning that wouldn't be able to be possible by somebody with a PowerPoint and a lecture. And in one of your articles, you mentioned like the role of pedagogy as action research and doing action research, they kind of mutually inform, inform each other in the why action research article, you mentioned that. And I think that You know, we can talk a little bit about that in our next segment, which is about ethics and action research. So I know, Mary, from uh, conversations that um, we've had in person, as well as literature that you've written, that you have somewhat, I I, what I interpret to be as a a critical lens of the traditional approach to to ethics in higher education and in research, particularly with respect to the what's become common practice and in institutional review and how university, the processes that universities feel that compelled to implement. You write pretty extensively and introduce really this idea of covenantal ethics in action research. You cite Helson's 2006 definition of co- covenantal ethics as, quote, the unconditional responsibility and the ethical demand to act in the best interest of our fellow human beings. And you further operationalize that term into three specific practices, the acknowledgement of human interdependency, the co-generation of knowledge, and the, the development of fair power relations. My question is, first, can you tell us in, in your own words a little bit about how traditional or more conventional ethics and research 
differ or diverge from ethical considerations in action research? Yeah, the existing human subjects review processes in the United States, but also in many other parts of the world. I see the same thing happening in the UK, for example, and in Australia. Although, shout out to Canada and the OCAP principles around ownership and control of Indigenous knowledge. I think that has been one of the really signature shifts in how we think about knowledge and knowledge ownership in Indigenous communities. So good on y'all. Um, but, you know, the system that we currently have for reviewing human subjects' recetical model, and it's reasonably well adapted to the situation for which it was developed. And the principles of autonomy, beneficence, and justice are good principles. The way they're operationalized within traditional sort of systems is very weak. Autonomy comes down to, you can choose to be in my study or not. As action researchers, when we talk about autonomy, we're talking about autonomy in a much more robust sense of people really having ownership over the decisions that influence their lives. So it's not that it doesn't do what it was designed to do initially well. Zach Schrag wrote a book called Ethical Imperialism that talks about how what was a biomedical response to really horrendous ethical issues and things like the Nazis and how they did experimentation on people or the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. You know, there've been lots of examples. So it was a reasonable response to horrific actions by researchers. To extend that to something like action research, it's asking the wrong questions of the wrong people and coming up with the wrong answers. And then we have to sort of somehow try to fit ourselves into this system. I think what we need to do is just develop an entirely new system for evaluating the ethics of action research, which is what I tried to do with the structured ethical reflection process. That was why that was developed, was in response to what I saw as being a very inappropriate and ineffectual way of understanding research ethics in the context of action research. I think there are huge ethical issues in action research. And one of the case studies in this book that I did recently with my friend Sarah Banks talks about like the ethical review person basically saying, well, we know that you're doing action research and it's all for the good of the community, so it's okay, you must be doing the right thing. And the person who wrote the response to that sort of said, oh, do not ever believe that. When we start just taking for granted that, you know, we're on the side of the angels so we can do no wrong, that's when we're bound to go down the... Uh, in fact, I've, I've done a talk called um, The Road to Hell is Paved with Good Intentions because I think we all have good intentions. But I think the harm that we can do in trying to create social change is profound. You know, in comparison to like, if I sent out a survey to people and they didn't answer it, well, that's not going to do much good, but it's not going to do much harm either, to be honest. You know, a lot of traditional research is not going to do much good, but it's not going to hurt anybody. But if we go about trying to challenge systems of power and privilege, the potential for very serious harm is very real. And I think we need to really take that on board as we're thinking about what we're doing and what we're promising people, what we're asking them to reveal about themselves. And it's not to say that I don't think people have a right to take risks. I really do. We published an article in Action Research Journal years ago as part of this special issue on ethics that Anna Inga's piece is actually in about research in the north of Ireland, talking about people being willing to really engage with discussions about the troubles and how painful that is. It's like doing research about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. It's extraordinarily painful. And human subjects research committees might very well say you're not allowed to do that because they're so risk averse. But, you know, to some extent, if we want meaningful answers to difficult questions, we have to be willing to go into those 
areas of risk. But how do we do that in a way that at least people are fully informed about what those risks are, able to do that? We try to protect them where we can. You know, there's just so many issues revolving around that. I think we need to spend a lot more time really reflecting on it. Yeah, totally. That's what I was trying to get at when I was talking about responsibility. You just said it in, in such greater clarity and depth. And I think that is the crux of the ethical question for action research is this change in the responsibility that you have if you're in a relationship to make sure that one, people have the right to take chances. And if you're creating social change, there is a real risk and there's also a real opportunity. And that requires walking carefully through the process and making sure that you are listening and that you're speaking with transparency and authenticity. Some people have a problem with the term authenticity, but you know, being honest with mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're saying. Particularly when you're talking about the way in which human subjects review committees talk about vulnerable populations just takes any power away from particular groups of people, you know, persons with disabilities, person with learning difficulties, children, young people are all considered vulnerable. And then the ability to decide whether or not they're going to participate in a study devolves to a committee at a university who doesn't even know them and know their situation, has never been in the community, has never been in that school. You know, why do they get to decide? And why do they get credit? You know, why do we get credit? The whole lot use of pseudonyms just drives me crazy because I wouldn't write an article without citing my colleagues, but you know, I'm gonna give somebody a fake name and take credit for their ideas. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely makes me nuts. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've been trying to list as special contributors, some of the people. So even though, because the REB process is so infuriating, like, oh, here's some special contributors in like the front Mm -hmm. of the article. It's gotten some pushback with some editors, but I'm going to keep trying it Mm -hmm. Mm because I think it's really important to make sure Mm -hmm. that the people get the credit that they deserve. If you want to see an extraordinary example of how that is done well, read Rosalind Beadle's dissertation. Rosalind worked with a group of Aboriginal women in Australia, and her dissertation opens with this extraordinary image of a painting that one of the women in her research group did that captures the story of the project. And if you know anything about like Australian Aboriginal art, it seems abstract, but it's actually very narrative. And it's this beautiful painting. And then the story in the women's language, and then the story in English, and then her dissertation begins. She does the the most extraordinary job of upfront honoring the voices of our participants. That's often, you know, more rhetoric than it is actually reflected in practice. And Roz's dissertation just, it's like my touchstone for how to do that really well. Mary, we want to And I'm expecting the same thing from you, Adam. (laughs) Yeah, I only hope someday (laughs) you're talking about my dissertation in the same way. (laughs) You know, now I'm gonna have to go and read that dissertation uh, for sure. (laughs) That's too funny. One last question, but it's kind of two parts, right? And it kind of has to do with, yes, there's like the IRB and the institution and all the things that we do to get approval, but then there's also establishing ethics in the field. And you reference in your article how there's kind of at least two, two levels to that, right? One of which is sort of individual reflection. And you talk about using a first person action research approach to articulate your own value systems, multiple identities, and locations or power and privilege, and the ways in which these understandings influence our interactions with others and their research practices. That's sort of one lens that you introduce. And then the other is this idea of exploring the potential avenues of dialogue and collaboration through an ethical lens. 
And you mentioned, you know, clearly stating values and goals and creating a shared vision and, and that sort of very practical. I'm in the field. These are this is sort of uh, the ethical boundaries that need to be established and created. Give us give our audience some quick advice about what they should consider or plan for or do in ensuring that the, the ethical realm in which they are working in is integrated and will set uh, them off on course for a strong, meaningful, and ethical study or investigation. Okay. I'm going to plug my own work here, but I actually think that the structured ethical reflection process does a good job of doing that. And I've gotten you know calls from different people sort of in very different realms who have done it in a workshop or read about it, didn't want to do it. So I think it has legs in terms of sort of being extended to other sort of areas. But the idea is basically to articulate for oneself a set of ethical principles that you want to live by. And sometimes my students will say, well, are you talking about my personal life or my professional life? And I sort of say, well, if your ethics aren't aligning between the two, we've got a problem, right? You don't want your professional ethics to be out of line with who you want to be as a human being. And then really forcing yourself to think about it each stage of this research process. What's a question I could ask myself that will help me to get back to that? Alfredo and our friend Victor Friedman and I just wrote a piece about getting lost in action research and the importance, not just the what to do if, but how to go about getting lost in action research processes. And we think it's really important because if you just follow the normal pathway, you get where you've always been. And that's sort of totally antithetical to doing action research. But what we talked about was having a moral compass. You know, you've got to have some way of guiding yourself even while you're off getting lost. And that moral compass is by articulating a set of ethical principles that you want to have guide your practice. When I talk to groups about it, I talk about it like dancers or people who practice yoga, strengthening their core muscles so that their actions are more fluid. And I think of developing sort of your ethical core in the same way. You know, you think about these things, you really articulate them, make them explicit, not tacit, so that when you're in a situation where you're challenged ethically, you more naturally move from those ethical values that you've really honed for yourself. So you've developed that ethical core, that moral compass that can guide you. And then that becomes part of a conversation you have with others as well. So that as a group, you can sort of go back and say, we said that one of our shared ethical values was transparency, but have we really been honest with each other in making this decision or in how we've acted? We said it was going to be kindness. Are we being kind to one another in this moment, both individually and collectively? It's a way for us to be personally accountable to one another and then publicly accountable. I think that these should be things that are included in our research write-ups. You know, these were the principles that we felt guided us. And then a re real reflection on we went wrong at this moment. You know, we made a mistake and we righted it in this way. I think we need to be much more open about times that we have encountered ethical problems and how we, we tried to resolve those and whether we felt we were successful or not. I think that's sort of my best advice to people. Mary, I think that's what we would call a mic drop moment. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wonderful insights and knowledge with us. And I hope that now that you know that we're doing this podcast, <laughs> since I finally brought you in on it, that you'll come back and we can chat more perhaps in the near future. Yes, so. though I'd, I'd love to do that. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at 
the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. Also, don't forget to check out our crossover episode, where we're interviewed by Dr. Linnea Rademacher on her podcast called Action Research Global Conversations. See you next time.